Happy Monday and welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. Apparently, I am going to have to watch uh, Ted Lasso right now. And yes, I confess, I have not actually watched it. Um, we're, we're joined by David Frum. I don't know, David, are you a, are you a Ted Lasso fan? I'm always about six months behind what everyone I else am too. is watching on television. So uh, I, 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 look, I'm impressed with myself that I vaguely know that Ted Lasso is a show on TV. Yeah, that's kind of where I'm at. So I, you say you're six months behind. I'm way, you know, further behind. I actually like to have, you know, hot new series be in season three before I start, because then, then I know that my investment is going to be justified. Okay, so I, 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 let me tell you where I'm. What I'm looking at right now is we're having this conversation, and we're going to have this deep, ser- serious conversation, right? You know, because we're serious adult people. Yes, exactly. Yes. I'm looking at a picture of the um, of the former president of the United States wearing a blue suit. You know, I don't know if you've seen this one. Uh, sitting on the back of a Velociraptor. Uh, he's got an RPG strapped on his back. He's firing a machine gun, and the Velociraptor is actually carrying um, a banner with the American flag on it. And the reason I'm looking at this is because this is itself on a flag being held by a sitting member of Congress, Florida Congressman Mike Waltz, who um, I, you know obviously thought that this was a way that maybe he could curry some favor with the the, the former guy. And sure enough, he uh, he got the endorsement from from Trump. So. Uh, in case you haven't seen it, it's not every day you see, you know, you know, a guy shooting yeah. a machine gun, riding a velociraptor with an RPG attached to his back. But apparently this is the price of admission to the House Republican conference these days. huh? Well, one, something I find very strange about this, I, I'm going to admit I'm kind of a health nut. Um, I, I, I run up and down the exorcist steps for fun. I do chin up competitions. I mean, I'm just I'm kind of cracked on the subject and and I will talk about it unless um, headed off. And so I am just baffled that a person who's obviously the least physically competent president we've had since Franklin Delano Roosevelt post polio, um, has become this symbol of, I mean, the guy can't lift a glass of water. He can't walk down a ramp. He hasn't done meaningful physical exercise in probably almost half a century. Uh, and yet people think he's this, this rippling top. He's ripped. And I mean, you know, I, I just think if you poked his belly, it wouldn't stop reverberating for half a week. So what are they talking about? Even on their own, like, even on their own crazy terms where uh, manly beauty is the requirement for the president, he's not that. You know, if, if you want to fit, pro, if, if that's what you care about, mm-hmm. the guy you want is Gerald Ford. And now that. There was a, uh, a former male model, you know, uh, double black diamond skier, played center for the University of Michigan. If that's your idea, if that's your requirement, Ford is your guy. He could handle an RPG on the back of a Velociraptor. <laughs> I, I, I think the word that we're, we're, we're looking for to describe Donald Trump's physique is gelatinous. Um, but but yeah, it is true that there's a, there's a whole genre of Trump porn out there, isn't there? Where where he's shown, you know, with his ripped muscles, looking like Rambo, and but but the Velociraptor is it's it's a choice, isn't it? Is that not only does he charge into battle, um, you know, firing the machine gun with one hand, by the way, um, yeah. and you know, it has the rocket launcher on on his on his back, but that he's he's uh, he's riding a an extinct dinosaur. 
Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, know, not, I'm not sure the what the message there is. You know? and, and, and let's put it bluntly. The Velociraptor isn't as big as most people think it is. I don't think yeah. it could carry him. The guy weighs close to 300 pounds. <laughs> it would crush the poor Velociraptor to death. So uh. what are we talking about? Well, so, okay, so now since we're on the issue of hell. I don't mean to indulge these kinds of things because, we, again, we it's, it's, you, you can be, you don't have to be physically ripped to be a good president. Um, but no. if, if you're going to claim that as your qualification, wa- walk the walk. You know, yeah, walk the walk. Well, so and again, congratulations to uh, Congressman Waltz, uh, Mike, Mike Waltz, who who got the coveted yeah. endorsement. Um, it, the, the, the contrast between him and Anthony Gonzalez, I think, is just so so striking that that you know Gonzalez is out, but we're going to get you know we're going to get more you know people with the Velociraptor flag. We're going to have more Marjorie Taylor Greene with a you know with a you know fifty caliber rifle blowing up cars, or we're going to get more you know well, crazy that, stuff, you know. That's another example of this. So um, I, I just finished reading a forthcoming book by uh, Tim Mack about the National Rifle Association. So uh, Tim Mack is a reporter at NPR. Yeah. He, I, sure. he, he worked for me about a decade ago when I was running a website. Um, and Tim volunteered for the Army Reserve. Um, he qualified as a medic. He's about to get his uh, uh, paratroopers' wings. Um, and he's uh, going for a marksmanship course. He's a real expert on riflery. And one of the things that that Tim keeps being baffled by is how none of the gun enthusiasts in Congress seem to have any real idea about how to handle a weapon. Mm. <laughs> like if that actually, I mean, that's obviously a plastic toy gun that she's, she's playing with, but, but if that were, I mean, it's just a model of how, what not to do with, with, I mean, the weapon is hot to the touch. It makes a lot of noise. It has recoil. <laughs> I mean, it's just, uh, it's like a cart. It's, you know, there's more realism in uh, a Marvel comic than there is uh, with these people who are supposed avatars of gun rights. Well, you remember that immortal moment when Ted Cruz actually what cooked some bacon on the on the barrel of a gun, and then ate. The, I mean, this is this is it is so cartoonish. That's the problem. By the yeah. way, did you see Josh Mandel, the leading Republican candidate for Senate's tweet today? Uh, you, no. you, you, okay. This this guy is actually running for the United States Senate. He, on, there's, on, there's, on, on the yeah. message of Shunda for the Goyim, I assume, that yeah. he's like, which is a Yiddish phrase meaning you know the the one who shames us before the nations. <laughs> well, he's working at it. He says, "You he, here's the tweet went out this morning. You can't spell pandemic without dem. Is this a coincidence? Question mark." I'm sorry. Where, where did he get that book? Jokes from for, from his edition of Jokes for Children. It's just the jo- jokes from morons. I do, I don't know. So, <laughs> but okay. I, I guess the, this is the, this is the problem. This is the problem. It's the it's it's not just that you have a purge of people, you know, um, and apparently Trump wants to purge Mitch McConnell. It's that as a result of it, you're getting more of this. You're getting this dumb shit you're getting the bigoted stuff you're getting the you know the madison cawthorns you're getting yeah. jd vance saying that Nicki minaj is more reputable than rachel maddow you're getting trump writing letters in georgia's you know asking them to decertify the election and declare him the real winner i mean it's just i'm sorry david i for yeah. people who say you guys should take this more seriously if you don't laugh at it if you don't understand yeah. how ludicrous it is it will make you crazy you it will be like you've taken crazy pills yeah well well, the, the thing that is really um, th- this is a, maybe a segue to something else you want to talk about. Um, so, the, the Biden administration is making a series of very profound 
choices, yeah. uh, not just about taxing and spending and emergency relief, but about the structure of the economy. They're coming up with a much more activist approach to um, antitrust. I'm working actually right now, my next story for The Atlantic is about what they're doing in the ag business. And many of these choices are hugely important and hugely consequential and hugely debatable. Um, so is there, there is no one in the Republican Party who is, who is saying, this reactivation of antitrust policy that the Biden mm -hmm. people have in mind, is this a good idea? There, there, there are, I mean, I know the Biden people are conflicted about it. There are smart arguments on the other side. When they come down, as I think they will, on the more activist approach, somebody needs to be speaking for the less active approach. Um, and we need, given that we are condemned to be a two-party system, we need the other party to stand up and actually oppose the administration party on important things that affect people's lives in a meaningful way. And mm -hmm. every time you're talking about these culture war hot buttons, uh, you know who really can relax are the people inside the Biden administration who are pushing policies that otherwise would have been opposed on policy grounds. Yeah, I mean, and and there are legitimate arguments to make about antitrust. Um, of, you know, that's the size of spending packages. Uh, they're they're uh, they're pushed to beef up the IRS by giving them access to every bank account that has more than six hundred dollars in it. I mean, there are some meaty issues that I think would touch people's lives, um, yeah. and and that that have long term consequences. But instead, what we're talking about, you know, what it, whatever it is that Madison Cawthorn. Paul Gosar I want to talk about any given day. And of course, you know, Kevin McCarthy is a man, you know, without principles or a plan beyond just getting the majority. Right. And I think there are Republicans who think, let me just do this stuff and then I'll get into Congress and right. then I'll be responsible. Right. Um, I, I think that's J.D. Vance's plan, obviously. Yeah. I, I do intend someday to be a, a senator who will bring credit to the state of Ohio. But first, I have to go through this absurd uh, fraternity hazing. Um, but what everyone is about to discover is the way you campaign does affect the way you govern. You, you actually eliminate options. You introduce yourself to a certain set of person. You, you gain or lose trust in certain ways. And so um, and the anti-vax thing has been consequential because the Republicans, they thought they could just use the issue without being consumed by the issue. Right. But it, in fact, it's given them an identity uh, that it's the idea, I'm not anti-vax, I'm anti-vax mandate is too complicated. Um, that people want to know pro for it or against it. Well, I'm for it. I just respect the people who won't do it so much that I think they should be allowed to infect others. So that sounds like you're for it. That sounds like, sorry, you're against the vax. Um, and you need in politics oftentimes very simple, clear messages. Um, you, once you govern, you can start filling in all the detail. But you need to plant your flag somewhere. And, and there's been a lot of opportunistic planting the flag in, in ground Republicans, most Republicans don't want to hold, but where they find, wait, wait a minute, I can't get this flag now out of the ground, having right. put it in the ground. Well, let's talk about the vaccine mandates. And I know that uh, you, you have been, you've been writing a lot about this lately. Um, a couple of things. It, it, do, it does seem that there are polls out showing that vaccine hesitancy is a lot more widespread than we would like to think. But also, as these mandates are put into effect, what we're finding is the compliance is pretty high. And yes. that the number of people who, you know, are saying, well, I will resign if I have to get the vaccine. Actually, those numbers are very low, aren't they? So I, I've, these, I've they work. Yeah. I've been doing a thread keeping track of this. I mean, mm -hmm. if you, um, here's a, a classic problem in history polling. If you ask people, did you vote in the last election? 
Right. You will come up with a number about 20 points higher than the number of people who actually <laughs> did, did vote in the last election. That it's easy to say things in a poll. And, um, and, and people are, they don't actually do all that they say. So when you ask a question like, uh, would you refuse the vax? It's cost free to say, you know, and once it, you've got that in your head, it's a, it's a sign of identity and loyalty. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a cheap answer. And you say, no, this is going to cost you something. You may not be able to go to the bar you want. You may not be able to go to a football competition. Uh, you, may, you, may, may not, you may lose your job. Then people will wait a moment. Now that I have to weigh the costs and benefits, I arrive at a different answer. And so we're seeing a big difference. And, and I, I, I've been doing this. I, I, this annoys some of the anti-vaxxers, but I've, you know, they, they got very excited that in, in the University of Indiana healthcare system, um, something like 125 people lost their jobs in the middle of September over not being vaccinated. So see, there's massive resistance. But you look, the university system has 34,000 staff, more, more than that, 34,000 staff. Uh, they susp- When they had a September 1st deadline, you must be vaccinated. It's a hospital system. You must be vaccinated to work in the hospital system. Yeah. And 300 people were suspended out of 34,000 for missing the deadline. And then they gave them two weeks and said, okay, you're suspended without, if you, you can get your job back if by 914, by September 14th, you're vaccinated. And then of the 300 holdouts, all but 125 were vaccinated. And those 125 were part-timers. So it's 61 full-time equivalents out of 34,000. And you think, you know what? Those 61 full-time, those 120, they shouldn't be working in a hospital. No. <laughs> I mean, that's not, that's, that's good for the patients. If people, Absolutely. Because are they washing their hands? Are they, are they, you know, wearing a hairnet? I mean, if you, if you are that indifferent to the health of the people you're working with, you shouldn't be in a hospital. I so think that's, win, that is, win, win. that's a great point. No, that's a great point. It's like, if, if you are reckless on this, this point, what else are you not doing? And I yeah. think I keep coming back to to, uh, to to that that question. Anyone who thinks that you somehow have a, a an entitlement or a right to work in healthcare with vulnerable people who are, by definition, uh, yeah. perhaps you know you know much more likely to be immunocompromised without being vaccinated, it, it's it's a crazy idea. So, talk to me a little bit about you got into a back and forth with one of our former colleagues yeah. um Andrew Egger who's now over at the dispatch who suggested it would be deeply unfair to extend the vaccine ma- uh, mandate to people who are naturally immune which would include people who've already had the coronavirus and in theory yeah. have some sort of antibodies and you were just not having it you were not buying that yeah. Well, anyway, I, I I see afterwards that Andy took this a little took this personally and got upset about it, and I'm really sorry about that because it wasn't meant personally. And mm-hmm. he he then complained on Twitter that he had, he'd written this article for the Dispatch, and he posted a link to it, and uh, I wrote a tweet that said the word no five times and gave five reasons for saying no. And what I did was I took issue with his conclusion. I didn't visit his reasoning, and so he got annoyed with me that I had not respectfully work through his reasoning for reaching the answer. And I, but I thought that I would have been too personal and anyway, not interesting. The point is the answer. Should, um, should we carve out an exemption to vaccine requirements for people who have had COVID before? And, and there, and there are five reasons why the answer to that is, is no. And I'm sorry that my, that mm-hmm. he didn't, he felt roughly handled and I apologize. I didn't mean to make it personal. I didn't mean to, what? he just happened to, people are making this argument. He happened to make it more clearly and more visibly than others, so I, I jumped off from them. But it was not a comment about him; it, okay. was, it was a comment about the answer. But here, here are the, the, the reasons why this. Uh, first, we don't um, 
we don't know exactly exactly um, what how much COVID expi- exposure buys you, how how much. So there's you're, mm-hmm. you're, you know it's it's not there's not like something where it, this is not like one of those diseases you get it once and you never get it again. Um, like smallpox, if it doesn't kill you, it, it may leave your face disfigured, but you know, at least you know you're never going to have smallpox again. People get COVID more than once. Um, it's unusual, but they do. But the, the real, when you're looking for, I think about these things like um, a lawyer. When you're you're looking for a rule that is clear, simple, easy to enforce, do you have the do you have the QR code that shows you took the vax? Come on into our bar. Do you not? Don't. Um, and everything else is complicated. And, and, you know, and if, if there's a suggestion, well, you could get a doctor's note uh, that says you've had the disease before, and therefore that's as good. Sorry, this is the land of Dr. Oz. This is a country full of Dr. Quacks. Um, I can't trust your, I don't know who this doctor you have from a state 300 miles away, whether this is a reputable doctor, or whether it's an osteopath, or whether it's a homeopathic doctor. I don't know. I, I don't know that it's a real doctor. Um, and I don't, and okay, well then the answer is maybe you show the underlying blood work. Well, that's way more invasive, yeah, way but, more. but the, but the final point is they're embedded. And this is my ultimate complaint mm-hmm. embedded in this argument about so-called natural immunity is that the, the vaccination is some kind of imposition or inconvenience. It's, it's a bad thing that people that a rational person would reasonably want to avoid if they could. And, and that is the, right now where we are. This country needs that idea smacked down so hard. Um, it is not. I mean, I just had. I'm going to uh, Sub-Saharan Africa for the first time, hmm. um, and next month. And as part of that, um, and I'm, I'm holding in my hand my passport, and beside it the papers that are the vaccination part of my vaccination passport, which is what you had showing the list of vaccinations I've had, including yellow fever. And when you get them. Some of them are kind of un- yellow fever shot is kind of uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, it, if you didn't go to West Africa, you wouldn't get the yellow fever shot because right. it is authentically uncomfortable. But it's better than getting yellow fever, um, so which can kill you. So I got it, and and you know had an uncomfortable couple of hours, and then I got over it. Uh, it's not an if you want to go to West Africa, it's not. It's a miracle of science. It's mm-hmm. not an imposition. And the the, uh, the COVID vaccination is even less burdensome. I, I know some people have a bad bad day. Uh, I, I personally did not. Most of the people I know did not, but some people do. But compared to the alternative, it's it's a blessing. It's a miracle. And we got it less than fourteen months after the uh, disease was identified. We should be grateful, and we should st- we should stop indulging the idea that a reasonable person would rationally want to avoid it. And this, just this morning, we got the word that uh, there's new Pfizer research out uh, showing that low doses are safe for children 5 to 11, which suggests to me that we are very, very close to having a vaccine that will get all of our kids back to school. This is a huge yeah. thing if we're willing to follow that medical research. I want, don't we want this over? Yes. Don't, don't desperately. Don't, don't, don't we want to like just put this all, like, just uh, get this over. And, um, an extraordinary work by a lot of talented people has made it, po- made it possible to see the day when this is all over. And that day could be, you know, it should have been this fall. It could be next spring. Let's just get it over with and then go on to, you know, other, you know, we still, you know, one of the things that happened in 2020 was in, uh, 2018 and 2019, America made good progress against the opioid epidemic. Mm-hmm. Um, opioid deaths came down. In 2020, they spiked up again. And 
you could sort of guess why. Um, people were out of work. Uh, they, were, uh, they were at home. They were alone. They were frustrated. So anyone who had any kind of um, dependency on on um, these kinds of drugs had an opportunity to revert. And then we put then there were these stimulus bills that put a lot of money in people's hands. So hmm. they had the wherewithal with which to purchase the pills and the uh, psychological the flare-up of the things that made them dependent on them. And so the result was the 2020, we saw a spike in COVID, in, sorry, in opioid deaths. Let's keep... We're talking right now about the COVID problem, which is absolutely easy to solve, which we have the, not easy, but we have the wherewithal to solve it. Once we do that, we can get back to a truly difficult national health crisis, which we don't have good answers to. And that is opioids, which are killing people on a large scale. And we are stealing the time away from them. We are stealing the time away from our obesity. And people keep saying as if it's a debater's point that obesity makes you more vulnerable to COVID. Why don't we do something about obesity? Okay, I, I, I'm with you. Um, let's do something. And I, I mean, people might not like, I, I'm sympathetic to some of the more Bloombergian interventions. You don't have to agree with me, maybe it's other things, mm-hmm. but we're not actually going to do anything about it until we get this first problem out of the way. So let's solve the problems that are solvable and then create mental space and budget and emotional time to go to work on the things that are really hard. And I, I think that there's, there's some polls out suggesting that I think that, that the, that despite what you see on Fox News or Twitter, that most people are kind of there, that they're willing to do it, that that if they think that that if they have to wear masks and you know get vaccinated, if it will get us through this, it is worth it. Okay, let's let's switch gears a little bit here because I really wanted to talk to you about a piece you wrote in the Atlantic last month, last week. What the Never Trumpers want now. The cultural core of the GOP is exiting the party. The Democrats should keep those voters in their corner. Here's how to do it. So I, 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 I want to break down your piece, David, you can, you can descend on this, into two parts. The first is, will you explain why Republicans left the party, why people were disillusioned and that experience, which I found to be um, one of the best descriptions of the process of disillusionment, and then get to what you know where do they go now are did the democrats rent them did they buy them so can we do you want to break it down into two like that or or, or is it yeah, breaking down you want right. to break it down into three or four because i, I thought perfect. your i thought your description of what it was like to be a republican who believes certain things and then watch those values be thrown apart and then look around and go who are you people why do i it, you know what should i trust so talk to me about that a little bit the process of dissolution. We've all we've all been through this. It's 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 um, it's deeply wrenching. I mean, you don't want to exaggerate. This is a free country, and um, look, some people like you have have pay, mm-hmm. taken real economic hits mm-hmm. along the way. Um, but you're not even at the worst moments for you. You were never in danger of going to prison or having your house taken away from you or, you know, the kinds of things that happen. And, you know, you you had had a shock to your income, you you had a shock Mm -hmm. shock to your ways of working, and that was painful enough. But the real impact, and I certainly in my case, and I think even you would say this, it was to our friend, our peer group, our friendship, our sense of ourselves and our sense of others. And these relationships are, these associations are tremendously important um, emotionally, but also I think they just, it's how we build our world. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, we always have friends. We think, okay, this friend's a little out there, but their heart's in the right place. And they sometimes say a wacky thing or two, but, you know, you know, you change the subject to, you know, the uh, fly fishing or whatever it is. And we, and, <laughs> and it's normal. So we, we've all been, we've gone through this of being, dis- discovering that things that you find profoundly unacceptable um, 
other people whom you know and trusted and cared about, they find them acceptable. And, and they then, by the way, also look at you and say, I thought you were loyal to me. Um, and I thought when we all agreed that we were going to do this thing, even if, if uh, we would all do it together, why aren't you with us? And why are you being critical? Um, why are you judging me in this way? So, it, so it's, a, it's like a kind of emotional exile. Um, you, don't, uh, the, you find yourself estranged. And, and, and once you do that, I quote, quoted something Christopher Hitchens said to me many years ago. When I was asking about leaving socialism. And he said he felt like a man tumbling down a hill. And every time he clutched at a branch to break his fall, the branch snapped in his hand. And then he found himself, you know, with, with at the end of the process. And, you know, and he said, I miss socialism the way a man might miss an amputated arm. But there's that no going was, back to it. That spoke to me is they, you can, well, I can still have this, right? Okay, well, I can still believe this, or maybe this is salvageable. And one after another, you're disabused of that. And so you, yeah. you keep falling and find yourself suddenly in this kind of no man's land. Now, people will say, who cares about Charlie Sykes? Who cares about right. David Fromm? You're just, you know, and at, at some deep level, of course, that's, that's true. Who cares about mm -hmm. any one of us? But it's also true that through the history of the American party system, it sort of politically involved people are harbingers of what others will do. And this is something I cut from the article because it was a little, there's, you know, too much detail, but I'll say it on the air. So when, whenever we've had big changes in the party system, you can see individuals who sort of lead the way. I, I, I set the example of Lyman Trumbull, who was a um, senator from Indiana during the Civil War, a close associate of Abraham Lincoln's, um, and the drafter of the 13th Amendment and the, man, the principal force in getting the 13th Amendment through the Senate. Lyman Trumbull started his life as a Jacksonian Democrat and in the crisis of the 1850s found himself forced out of his party into this new Republican Party um, and it was often very uncomfortable for him. And he was never kind of an easy Republican. And, uh, but, but that's where he stayed. Or Harold Ickes, who um, ran the public works program. He was Secretary of the Interior under Franklin Roosevelt. He, he, he was a Democrat who had started life as a Teddy Roosevelt Republican and worked on Teddy Roosevelt's campaigns and then followed Teddy Roosevelt into the Bull Moose Party and ended up a Democrat. And, and we knew so many people like Paul Nitze and Eugene Rosto had started off in their careers, Truman ja uh, Johnson Democrats, and ended up in the Reagan world. Um, and you might say, well, who's Paul Nitze? Who cares about Paul Nitze? But what Paul Nitze went through in an articulate, conscious way, he spent a lot of time thinking about it, millions of other people who are less close to the political system were having some similar kind of experience. So it's always people who think a lot about politics are always aberrational <laughs> by definition. Right. But but what we are working through in our full-time thinking, um, it, we're not doing it alone. Uh, we're, we're doing it as part of a larger social movement in which other people who are you know, more psychologically normal <laughs> yeah. um, and spend less time thinking about it, but they're going through a similar kind of transition. We can just explain what it's like because we think about it more, more fully. So how... You know, I mean, the, the, the long-term joke has been, the long-term joke has been that uh, Never Trump is not a movement, it's a dinner party. Um, right. You know, what you just explained, though, is why it does have uh, impact on, on elections. How significant was that group in the 2020 election? How important uh, is it for Democrats to pay attention to the argument you're making that, hey, you might want to keep these people around? It was much more important in 2018 than in 2020, and it will be more important in 2022 than in 2020. Look, when you have the drama of a presidential election, you can really 
get a lot of juice by revving up the core part of your party. Um, uh, and even for the Democrats who, they're just a much more mixed, co they're a bigger coalition, but they've got many more moving parts than the Republican party. And Democrats are more different one from another than Republicans are one from another. But in, with the excitement of a presidential election, you can focus it on. So anti-Donald Trump, um, could unite a lot of different people. But in 2018, Democrats won the House by winning, I keep pointing to this, they won George H.W. Bush's former seat in Houston. This is a seat that Bush won in 1966 and that stayed Republican through Watergate, uh, through 9-11, um, uh, through the Iraq War, through the 2008 financial crisis, uh, stayed Republican even through the election of Donald Trump in 2016. The Democrats took it in 2018. Newt Gingrich's former seat near Atlanta, that, Gingrich took that in 78, um, and it stayed Republican again from 78 mm -hmm. until 2018. Eric Cantor's former seat in mm -hmm. the affluent suburbs of Richmond, Virginia, um, that had been Republican since the early 80s and went Democratic in 2018. Um, Barbara Comstock's seat on the south shore of the Potomac River, that's been Republican for 60 of the past 66 years, and it went Democratic in 2018. Now, those, that was, those seats were not won by Bernie Bros. Uh, they uh, they were not won by activating the urban progressive base of the Democratic Party, or and they were not won by minority voters either. They they were won because a lot of people who are culturally had been culturally Republican had voted Republican for Romney and McCain and George W. Bush, and especially especially the women said I can't abide Trump, and and the Democrats have convinced me they're a safe vote. They will not do anything too much that I don't like. I can trust them enough that I can solve this problem. And if those uh, um, Republicans did better down the ballot in 2020 than they did at the top, and so Democrats who are looking at the 2022 election need to understand, they have to, the districts I just mentioned, those are the districts they need to worry about. And those districts are not going to respond to a turnout the base message. So what, what do Democrats need to do? Because this is a point, by the way, that I've tried to make over and over again, that, that you know, it's the, our, the control of the Congress is not going to be determined by the, you know, 20, you know, plus 20 Democratic districts or the plus 20 Republican districts. They're going to be determined by, you know, the seats held by the Abigail Spanbergers of the world right now. Mm -hmm. um, and and I, 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 I wonder whether or not that thinking or that understanding dominates a lot of the debate that we're seeing right now. Um, your yeah, take? Well, well, sometimes it helps to visualize the individual people you're trying to reach because you can talk about these things abstractly. We can talk in percentages, but you know, when, when an Abigail Spanberger knocks on the door and deals with the people who, who voted for her in 2018, made her election a little tenser in 2020 and who will decide in 2022, whether she keeps her job and whether the Democrats keep that seat, who's she talking to? Okay. Well, she's, uh, she's talking more to women than to men. Women who've been to college, uh, women who are probably married and probably have have children, um, who are a little more economically secure uh, than most, um, and uh, uh, a little more culturally, a uh, little, little more culturally moderate, a little more responsive to a message of moderation and consideration. I mean, one of the things that, that um, Democrats will often ask is, "Well, the Republicans do all these outrageous things; we should be just as outrageous." Yeah, those outrageous things absolutely activate the deep rural Republicans who feel culturally isolated. But the people whom Abigail Spanberger is meeting at the door, who voted for her in 2018 and went a little wobbly in 2020 and will decide her fate in 2022, they do not like a rough message 
They want a gentle message. They, they want to feel pride in the way they voted. One of the things that Donald Trump consistently got wrong was he, he never understood that, um, and the people around him never understood that a lot of people just thought he was an, not a fit person to have these enormous responses. He just didn't behave in the right way and talk in the right way. He was a nasty piece of work. And they didn't like, there are people who found that exciting, but more people found it repulsive. And the, and if you are tempted to say, well, why can't we be like that? You have to bear in mind, it's, it's not just wrong to do, it's also unwise to do. You, and um, that doesn't mean that every issue has to be split down the road. Um, that there, there are, you know, there are a lot of issues where, look, the Repu we Republicans are going to pay a policy price for Trump. Uh, our taxes will be higher than they either want, you know. Mm -hmm. And you know, that's just um, there are going to be some things that are going to happen in the 2020s that I wish had would not happen. But I accept those things as the price of first beating Trump and then secondly. Um, purging these toxins in the American political system and the Republicans need to lose some elections, you know, at my, to my ideological and in some cases, personal financial cost, um, in order to get us to a world where we can have a stronger, more functioning political system. So let, let me read you your, your conclusion of this piece, because it goes to the question of, you know, where, where do these voters go and, you know, how permanent is the shift? You write, a person who votes even once to protest against cruelty and in favor of empathy will be changed enduringly by that single action. We often act first and then develop the explanations for our actions later. And those new explanations may force us to reconsider previous prejudices, which is very true. I mean, I, we, we've just been discussing that. That's that yeah. process. The pro-Trump Republicans and conservatives got one thing right about their anti-Trump former comrades. Never Trump was not fundamentally a political movement. It was a moral reflex. Will that reflex now be integrated into normal politics in the post-Trump era? If it can, it will transform American politics and very possibly save the country from the forces of polarization, extremism, bigotry, and authoritarianism. Mm -hmm. I agree with that completely. That is the, the moral reflex. Do Democrats fully understand that, though? Um... I, I don't, I don't, let me put it this way, the highly online don't, because they don't think about politics in that way. I mean, they are very committed. All of us who are highly online, and I include mm -hmm. myself, and we have, we've got elaborately worked out political theories. Yeah. And, and so we're less responsive to that, to the, he just doesn't seem like a very nice person message. Yeah. <laughs> but lots of people do respond to it. And, and I think there are lots of people who are highly online who also, um, want you know are happy to go over the cliff all flags flying who want to win the argument rather than win the election um and uh who are interested in sort of uh mic political micro targeting i think also the attacking that a lot of the attitude the highly online more activist democrat has toward never trump is a way of having a proxy war against the mainstream of the democratic party um that hmm. right now uh you know um it's if you are a, a, a highly online urban progressive Democrat, you don't want to go attacking James Clyburn. Um, uh, that that's going to get you some blowback. So, but when the, the points you're making against the Never Trump Republicans are also points in an internal argument against the James Clyburns of this world, um, because they're, they're afraid that the Never Trumpers' influence will be to moderate the party, so they they, they become the stand-in for attacking yeah. establishment centrist Democrats. 
Exactly. And and the other thing, the, the thing that the centrist Democrats understand very well is the Democratic Party is like, uh, it's sort of like Los Angeles. It's a metropolis made up of all of these villages and mm-hmm. the villages are very different from one another and they're not very well connected. So uh, the idea that Demo- so uh, the, the, the idea that a democratic party could ever have a clear, consistent, bold ideological message, it's just, it's just too diffuse a party. It doesn't work that way. The Republicans can do it that way um, because the Republican party is, sm- is smaller and more homogeneous, but the democratic party really can't. And so the, the key to success for, for Democrats has always been being a little bit blurry uh, and including a lot of people who might not normally get along. And if, if what you want is an ideological progressive party, uh, you have um, you have to fight the political professionals in the Democratic Party. Say that's not going to work for us. It might work for them. It's not going to work for us. So you, you describe the mentality of of the people who have been disillusioned by the Republican Party as the moral reflex, looking around, saying that you know our former allies, our former orthodoxies just don't work. And if if I can't trust you on this, why should I trust you on that? So I have to rethink a lot of things. But I get a sense that many of them are also then looking at the political landscape right now and saying, okay, we've left, we've, we've put, you know, Trump, Trumpism and maybe even Republicanism behind us, but we didn't sign up for what the Democratic Party is. I mean, that, that's also part of it. And so the question is, who defines what the Democratic Party is? You know, if you turn on cable news, you look at the, you know, you know much of, you know, on- online online political discourse, you think the Democratic Party is AOC, when as we've been discussing, no, it's 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 much more complex than that. I and mean, that's kind of a challenge, isn't it? You know, mm-hmm. what is the appeal? Because if if it is, in, and some people may not like this, but if it is AOC, if it is Bernie, then a lot of those folks who, as a moral reflex, abandon the Republican Party are going to look at the Democrats and say, I don't want to be part of that either. And I'm not going to stay there. I'm not going to go with you uh, during the midterms, particularly if Donald Trump is not on the ballot. And maybe I might vote to put a check on that if I think that that's where you're going. That's right. I think that 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 is certainly right. And um, it means that uh, uh, the one of the reasons that the Democrats would normally have a bad year in 2022 is the American public has a kind of reflex mm-hmm. um, that just they automatically do that um, but the, the the thing that the Republicans are doing that is the, the biggest advantage Democrats have is the the, the, Repu- the only thing in this country that is maybe even more unpopular than Donald Trump is COVID and mm-hmm. and re- Republicans you know Republicans had their historic strength in uh, the suburbs in the areas where people are have a little bit more security, a little bit more education than some of their neighbors. And so when you say my our issue in 2022 is going to be no to the effective measures that put COVID behind us, um, that that may well work in the most in the more culturally alienated parts of America. Uh, but it's it's not going to work in the suburbs of Northern Virginia. Um, it, it's, it's not it's not going to work in the um, uh, in, in Eric Cantor's district, it's not going to work in Newt Gingrich's district. It's not going to work in what was George H. W. Bush's district. They're going to say these people, you know, don't want to check that people have been vaccinated. That's nuts. Uh, so, so they they do have the Re- Republican self destruction against them. But uh, I would say, would, would um, for the Democrats, the really uh, important thing is not to talk more radically than you intend to govern. And there is a tendency of the Democratic Party to say, you know, we'll give the words to the left. And the deeds to the right yeah. of our of our party, and they might actually do better to do it the other way around. 
um, to try to <laughs> govern a little bit more to the left and talk a lot more to the right. Yeah, it does strike me that defund the police was such an obvious uh, loser for Democrats. But right now they have a real opening uh, since so many Republicans are willing to associate themselves with people who beat cops up. Um, it would be interesting to see whether or not they could they could flip the script on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and by the way, you know, you might try to vaccinate the police. Yeah. Because if, if you just like the police, one of the things you notice is that the police unions have been some of the most ardent opponents of vaccination. And uh, and it's a good guess that the police who are most individually resistant to vaccination are the people who probably least belong on a police force. So, <laughs> yeah. so you can speak to the suburbs who like vaccination and also feed your anti-police uh, base um, in, in that way. But the, I think the main thing, and, and this is where the Democrats pay a little, little bit of a price for Biden's age. Um you know, I, I don't think Biden is, is mentally diminished at all in any, or in any important way. He may, have, he may have trouble remembering a name or two, but, mm-hmm. uh, but he's clearly physically diminished. Mm-hmm. And he's just not a physically energetic president. And so what you, knowing that this president in particular is, a much more reassur- is the most reassuring face in his party, he sh- you would think you'd want him out there all the time. Yeah. Um, and, but, and because of his age, uh, they, they can't do that. And that is a real problem they're going to have in 2022. Okay, so in the time we have left, I wanted to switch uh, topics again um, because I know you've written very, very extensively about Afghanistan and um, the for the final days of the of the Trump administration. I, I wanted to get your take on uh, what we're learning about the you know, Mark Milley, the uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, making a call to the Chinese, reassuring them that uh, no, Donald Trump wasn't going to be launching a nuclear attack, and getting all the generals together and saying, you know, this is the uh, this is the chain of, of command. Um, there was this massive blowback when this was first reported that somehow uh, General Milley had gone rogue. But the more we find out about it, the less roguey he seems, roguish well, he seems. Well, this is part of the, I think, generally pernicious influence that Bob Woodward has on the media ecosystem. So Woodward um, produces these books, which are – and especially since the um, departure of Alice Mayhew from Simon & Schuster, who was the editor who used to turn his notes into a finished manuscript. Hmm. The books are sort of slapped together yeah. uh, without a lot of regard for context. Um, um, in a way, I mean, uh, it isn't that they're inaccurate, although I, there are things in them that are always inaccurate, like I think the end of his Casey book where he claims to have uh, yeah. former CIA director Bill Casey's words out that, that pretty clearly looks to be untrue and made up. And it's kind of a big thing. Yeah. There, there's the famous story about the flower pot in his window with deep throat. That's obviously made up. Um, but most of the time, uh, the things are accurate as literally printed, but they're in contexts that are distorted and misleading. So then you take, and, and the books have become increased since again, Alice Mayhew has been out of the picture. The books have become increasingly slapdash. Um, then they are released then excerpts from them are released a week before the book itself. And not only are excerpts released, but su- publishers' summaries are released in a way to catch attention. And so what happened with the Millie thing is uh, 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 you took something that was a story about Millie working with other people in the defense establishment, including the Secretary of Defense, through the chain of command to reassure foreign counterparts of the stability of American policy. It's not even clear that President Trump didn't know about this, or if he didn't, or then president. And if he didn't know, we don't know that it was, it was that he wasn't told, or that 
Well, we put right. it in his briefing book. Yeah. <laughs> if he didn't know, that's not on us. Um, and yeah. Wait a minute. That's a dirty trick. You put it in a briefing book and you expected him to know <laughs> it? <laughs> yeah. Why didn't you call into Fox and Friends if you wanted him to know? You put it in a book? <laughs> but it's not clear that President, President Trump was uninformed. He may, might have been ignorant of it. But it was not clear that he was uninformed of it. And so then you put it in the Woodward book in a way that torques it. And then you put it in the news stories in a way that torques it more. And then it goes on to social media and you get these reactions and they lead um, heroes of the Republic like like um, Alexander Vindman to, to say things that, because, I mean, Vindman's a career military man. He's never re tried to work his way through line by line a Woodward book to say, how did he put mm. this together and discover well, there's a lot of bailing, a lot of sticking tape here, and a lot yeah. of safety pins. This is not how I put together a book. Um, he, that's not his job. Uh, so he, people believe it, and they are told again and again that Bob Woodward is the gold standard of American reporting. He's when so often he's delivering fool's gold. And I, I am so what, glad you're doing this because this is so important. I, I, I thought it was just me when I read the last Woodward book, and I thought, you know, how shallow it was, how sort of it sort of jumps around. You know, disconnected facts sort of misses the larger picture, um, misses the, you know, the, the the real gravamon of what he was writing about. And yet because he's Woodward, there is that certain, um, you know, there's that there's there's a certain you know piety about all of it but but his stuff has been somewhat slapdash it is questionable um there there have been reporters who have re-reported some things that he's written um that raise really serious questions and then the process that you describe of how you know it, it's like a game of telephone where you know mm -hmm. excerpts are put out and then social media gets out and then you know by the the end of the the, the phone call you have the completely wrong end of the story, and I think that's what happened here. And I and I think this is a cautionary tale for yeah. for for journalism and people who comment on this sort of thing. Well, as as everyone who's had to report a story knows, um, it's not just enough to quote what people say, right? Uh, because first, people don't always tell the truth. Mm -hmm. Second, even if they, if they mean to tell the truth, they don't always remember it exactly. Third, they always remember in a way that flatters themselves. And finally, it's just a bias of human. You have to, you can't pretend, you're not a camera. You are a human being too. And you have a duty to the reader, which is to say, I, I need to put this into a way where this is what I think happened and I take responsibility. And I might be wrong, uh, but I'm taking responsibility for it. So I'm not presenting this as, as just a transcript of what happened in the room because, well, transcripts are also misleading unless you see everything. So what... Um, what you get are these situations where you're left with a false, It's even if it's a case where there's nothing that is literally untrue. Uh, like the, the end of one of the, the last of the Trump books, um, he quotes uh, Donald Trump's uh, lawyer. lawyer, I think it's John yeah. Doerr. The, the final line is, and the problem is the president is a fucking liar. Right. And That's and the last this, line, yeah. That's the last line. That's yeah, a big yeah. thing. And it's supposed to make you think that Door, man of integrity, has realized with disgust that this person has been lying, you know, who's been lying to him mm -hmm. for two years, he's just figured it out um, and has turned his back in shame and indignation. But that's not, that's when you read the, that's, um, uh, Door was talking, was talking about mm -hmm. why Door's particular strategy of deception, yeah. Door's own unethical strategy wasn't going to work because it relied on Donald Trump being more disciplined, but Donald Trump couldn't be more disciplined, and therefore Door's unethical actions fell apart. But, but, uh, but because yeah. Door talked to Woodward and was so that, that Woodward then gives him a, a shoe shine, 
and, and makes him a much more a high-toned person than Dor really was. And and that problem just run, besets these books. Well, and, and there's a lot of shoe shining that goes on in these books. You, you can see that there are people who are burnishing their own reputations or, you know, posing in, in a way that that uh, he seems to sometimes uncritically accept. I think the best reporters of the Trump era are the ones who realize that you have to take, you have to triangulate everything you hear. Just assume that everybody's got an agenda, you know, that two thirds of the people, three quarters of the people are lying and that you have to, you know, have a, have a much different point of view. And I'm not sure that Woodward, despite all of his, his, you know, experience really fully grasps that. I, well, he I know also that's does. harsh for me to say, you know. It's, it's not harsh enough, um, yeah. because, frankly, because what Wood, Woodward's method is always transactional. You give me access, I'll give you a, a shoe shine. And the, the yeah. Alan Greenspan book is the outstanding example of this. Alan Greenspan, you know, is this hero. And so Woodward's mm. method with Trump was Woodward was there at the very beginning negotiating for access in the Trump yeah. administration, um, like w- it, it, in the inauguration period. And I, I wrote an article, I've written two articles about this method, one in 2018 and one in 2020 for The Atlantic. And I recommend, the details are there. But he would go on TV and defend Trump against um, stories of Russian influence and attack reporters who had done real cutting edge work because he knew that that especially bothered Donald Trump and use his attacks on other reporters' work and use the right. enormous prestige he has from 50 years ago um, to undermine them and use that to get the access for his own purpose. So he was not giving you a disinterested, um, impar- he, was not, he was not giving you, this is you know, my magisterial uh, position, evaluation of this. I am paying the toll to get the access I need for the book I want to do. And then through that book, I mean, so, I mean, he, uh, everything, you know, he, uh, in, I think, uh, the second of the Trump books, uh, he gives a huge good time to Mohammed bin Salman, the, uh, uh, you know, the murderous crown prince of of Saudi Arabia, Mm -hmm. because the person who, who, who gave him access at that point in the national security council was a big promoter. Of, of MBS. Um, and so he paid for his access by giving a good time to the Saudi prince. And unfortunately, the book is pu- published. It's written before um, mm-hmm. the murder of Khashoggi, published after. <laughs> and because Woodward never revises. <laughs> it's there. <laughs> it's still there. <laughs> no, you have to actually like make a list of like who are the sources, um, who are the insiders, whose perspective is being pushed here. And um, it, because otherwise, otherwise you will be misled. David Fromm, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it very much. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. And thank you for listening to today's Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow. We'll do this all over again.